We're looking at Romans chapter 2. We have moved out of that opening chapter of Paul's great letter to the Romans. And if you were here last week and you were uncomfortable, buckle up. Because Paul's just going to go deeper and deeper into showing us our need for the gospel. Um, We are in that section of Romans in which Paul is setting out from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, really the, the depravity of man, whether Jew or Gentile, he is going to great lengths to, to make us to understand what we are by nature and what we need so desperately. Paul's going to come to the resolution in chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. That is what Martin Lloyd-Jones has called the Mount Everest of Scripture in this epistle. But here this morning, we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we're looking this morning at Romans 2, uh, verses 1 through 29. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter and see how far we can get this morning. Having turned his attention from setting out that catalog of depravity among the Gentiles and We saw last week how man's great problem is that he has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And with that has come all kinds of manifestations of sexual sin. And then that whole depravity catalog at the end of chapter 1. Notice they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers. That's pretty much all of us. If you can't find yourself in there, there's something wrong. And if you think you're not in there, Paul has a word for you this morning. And so here in Romans 2, he now says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written in their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. You have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a, if I could insert this, true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, last Lord's Day, I told you that opening account from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian has come under the conviction of God's law, and he has felt that burden on his back, and he has met that man evangelist who told him to go through the wicked gate where he would be convicted of his sin, and then that would take him to the foot of the cross where he would lose that burden. And as Christian sets out on that journey, you know, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress, that he meets many different individuals. These are all people that we will meet in life. These are all people we'll find in any local church. And and not long into his journey, he meets a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And as he's talking with Worldly Wise Man, and Worldly Wise Man asks him what's wrong and what's he doing, and Christian says, I've got to get rid of this burden. I met this man, the evangelist. He said, if I go to the wicked gate, that, that I'll be able to figure out the way to lose this burden. And Worldly Wise Man says, let me cut you off there. There is an easier way. I've heard that many people have been helped by going into the city of morality And if you go into the city of morality, you will find a man named Mr. Legality, and he'll tell you how to get rid of your burden. And so Christian will go, and as you know, if you've read this, he will ultimately be directed by Mr. Legality to Mount Sinai. And he'll hear the thunder and the lightning and the terror of the law, and he'll he'll feel himself undone. He'll feel as though the mountain were going to fall on him. And he's not helped. And his burden is not removed, and so he is then corrected by evangelists, and he is set back on the gospel way of getting rid of that burden. Now, the reason I tell you that this morning is because Paul has moved from chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 1, verse 32, now to address a different issue that plagues the natural man. Back in chapter 1, Paul has talked about Uh, The lawlessness, the evil, the the moral corruption of Gentiles by nature. That's what we are by nature. And Paul has said that this is what Gentiles are like, that they've exchanged 
the truth of God for a lie. They've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. They've made for themselves all kinds of false gods. They've entered into all kinds of sinful practices. God has given them over to debase minds and depraved minds as a sort of temporal judgment for, for suppressing the truth about him. And it's important for us, because we are a theologically conservative Presbyterian church, it's important for us to come to terms with the fact that Paul understands there's a danger for people who are biblically conservative hearing that to say, that's right, those people are awful over there, but I'm not like them. In fact, everything that Paul addresses in chapter 2 is now not to the person enslaved to his or her lawlessness externally, but those who are enslaved to their self-righteousness religiously, even though they're no different in their hearts from those that they despise. Um, Notice the end of chapter 1, verse 32. Notice this. There, Paul says, speaking about the Gentiles, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And it's very easy to say, that's right, that's what our culture does, that's what we're seeing happening, that's what human history has shown in the Gentile world. And there's a danger, there's a danger for people who have grown up in the church, there's a danger for people who have embraced a a conservative biblical form of doctrine to look down on people over there and to think I'm not like them. And so notice what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. He moves seamlessly from 132 to 21. Now he turns and he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges or condemns the, the heart motives of others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, what is Paul doing? Paul is wanting to make sure that no one can find a loophole to thinking, I'm not like these people and I don't deserve the same judgment they deserve. Paul wants to make sure you don't try to find a loophole in self-righteousness because there's always a danger. There's always two ditches that we can fall into. Lawlessness on one hand, legalism on the other. They're the two enemies of the gospel. James Henley Thornwell, who was for some period of time the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia in the 19th century, also the president of the University of South Carolina, wrote this. Listen to this. The natural vibration of the mind is from the extreme of legalism to license. The gospel, like its blessed master, is always crucified between two thieves, legalists of all sorts on the one hand and the lawless or the antinomians on the other, the former robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us, the other robbing him of the glory of his work within us. You see, if, if, if we say, well, it's all of grace, I'll live the way I want, we're robbing Christ of his work in us, but if we say, You know what? I have God's word. I know what wickedness is. I try my hardest not to do those things. I try not to live like that. I try to better myself. And and there's no gospel? Then, Then what's happening is you're doing the exact same thing on the other extreme. These are two sides of the same coin. Whether you are lawless 
or whether you're a legalist. You know what, I, I'm going to say this this morning. I think in the better part of evangelical churches, I use that in the most redemptive way I used that phrase this morning. In, in the better part of most evangelical churches, at least in the 80s and 90s, if not into the 2000s, um, if someone had a conversion out of extreme sinful lawless rebellion, it was, it was placarded on radio programs like Unshackled. I don't know if you ever heard that. And, and if somebody was just a moralist and they had a sweet, quiet conversion, nobody celebrated that. What Paul's saying is both things are enemies of the gospel. Whether we are living in outright rebellion or whether we are quietly rebellious, inwardly rebellious. And so this morning, I want us to consider just three things as we look at this section together. First, as Paul is now addressing the, the, the legalist by nature, he is going to press on them, first, the inescapability of God's judgment, the inescapability of God's judgment. Then secondly, the impartiality of God's judgment. And then finally, the ineffectiveness of external religious rights, the inescapability of God's judgment, the impartiality of God's judgment, the ineffectiveness of external religious rights. Well, notice as he is stressing this inescapability, notice he says there in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, who judge another. Now, in order to understand what Paul's doing, remember back in chapter 1, he will say that the, the invisible attributes of God are clearly perceived in everything that is made, that God gives ample witness to his eternal power and Godhead, so that by nature all men are without excuse. Paul will use that phrase. He will say they are without excuse. But there's not enough evidence. There's plenty of evidence. Now, no one can come to saving faith in Christ by nature. We need scripture. We need the revelation of Christ. But all men are left without excuse. Notice now Paul picks up on that, now talking to the religious legalists. Notice this, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, later in this chapter, Paul is going to make it clear that he is addressing his contemporary Jewish people of which he had been converted out of. And, and there in verse 17, notice, he'll say, you call yourself a Jew. So he's very clearly speaking to the old covenant Jewish nation who's rejected Christ, who thinks they have the law, who thinks they're righteous in and of themselves, who think that they're better than the Gentiles, who despise the Gentiles. But notice what Paul does in verses 1 and verse 3. Notice this twice. He says, O man. He says, you are inexcusable, O man. I think Paul is here leading with a broader application. He's not just saying the Jewish people at, in the first century in the Greco-Roman world uh, were self-righteous and who trusted in the law. He's saying by nature, it's possible for anyone to trust in what they're doing, to trust in their works, to think that somehow they are commending themselves to God. Uh, and there is an inescapability to God's judgment. Notice, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Notice verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, here's, here's the danger. Back in chapter 1, 
Paul ends by saying, by nature, the Gentiles, the pagan nations, um, they not only practice evil things and they know their judgment of God, but they approve those that practice them. Here, he's saying, now here's another group of people who don't approve of those things, who say those are wrong, who say sexual sin is evil, who say gossiping and slandering is evil, who say envy is evil, who say adultery is evil, who say theft is evil, who, who acknowledge what evil is while practicing those things in their minds and hearts. And so Paul is saying, look, th there's, there's no way you're going to escape the judgment of God just by denouncing evil things while you yourself have an evil heart that thinks and does the same things. Now, I've, I've noticed in my 15 or so years as a minister that if I preach chapter one in conservative churches, everybody praises it. If I preach chapter two, nobody praises it. So listen very carefully. There's a word here for us. It's not enough to say, boo them, hooray us. Paul says, you need to say, boo me, because I do the same things in my mind and heart by nature. Now, listen to this, John Calvin, in his thoughts on this, says this. Listen to this. He says, they are extremely intoxicated, who think they can escape the judgment of God, though they do not allow others to escape their own judgment. Think about that. Calvin says, why would anyone think I'm going to escape the judgment of God when I don't let other people escape my own judgment? Because what men do by nature is they set themselves up in the place of God and they become judges instead of submitting to the Lord himself and crying out to him to have mercy on them. Um, the apostle here is confronting hypocrisy. Notice He'll do it at the very beginning of this chapter. He'll do it at the end of this chapter. Notice verse 3 and 4. He, he gives a series of searching questions that we are supposed to take to ourselves. Notice verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then notice toward the end of this chapter in, in verses 21 to 23, another series of questions. He says, you then that teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temp temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, this means that there is no help for us on Judgment Day in our own efforts. Remember, we've talked a lot about the never-enough quagmire. How many works are enough good works? They'll never be enough. And they're not good if you're not savingly united to Jesus. You see, the Jews thought, we have the law, God has privileged us, we know his revelation, we know what evil is, therefore we're better than these people that don't have the law. And what Paul is saying is you actually are in fact no better, and I would argue you're in a more dangerous position than them. This is why, by the way, when Jesus contended with the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders in Israel, and, 
and, and you see the hatred and the malice that they have toward him. These were the ones that prided themselves in keeping the law. These were the ones that plotted to kill Jesus, to murder him. These are the ones that Jesus says, you commit adultery. That, that you're just like everybody that you despise so much. And so much so that Jesus actually said multiple, multiple times in the gospel, the well have no need of physician, but those that it's, are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, those that think they're righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And then he'll go even further and say, tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom before you. Now that is a scathing thought. I remember my mom, who has been with the Lord for nine years now, used to say to me when I was a teenager, because I'd come home and say, so-and-so is such a nice person. I know they're not a Christian, but they're so nice. And my mom, who was the sweetest woman I've ever met in my life, used to say, Nick, hell is full of nice people. Hell is full of people that think they've done good enough. And Paul says, you're inexcusable. You're not going to escape the judgment of God based on your works. That's, that's really what he's trying to stress here. Now, I want us to look here. Notice, instead of escaping judgment, notice what Paul says happens in verse 5. He says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Best illustration I can give you for this is whenever a man or a woman attempts to establish his or, own, his or her own righteousness apart from trusting Christ and just tries really hard, what they're doing, according to Paul here, is, is essentially putting more and more into the bank of God's wrath for Judgment Day. They're storing up more and more for Judgment Day. Because there's no atonement for their sins. There's no satisfaction of God's justice. There's no propitiation of his wrath. There's no good news. Because what they're doing is exalting themselves over others and saying, I am God. I will do what's necessary before God. And notice, notice what Paul says in verse 16. The futility of that. Notice he says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Um, Paul is here dealing with religious hypocrites. You all know the word in Greek carries the idea of an actor's uh, mask, putting on the best face, putting on the best foot. And, and Paul's saying you can, you can put on the best external you can muster up but God sees the inner depths of the heart. He sees all the corruption of the mind. He, he sees through all the darkness of our hearts and minds by nature. There's nothing hidden from him. And Paul is trying to help those who are trusting in their works to understand that they need to come off of that. They need to turn to God in repentance and faith. Notice verse 4. He says that essentially by rejecting the gospel by rejecting our need for Christ, by trying to do good enough. Notice this, Paul says that men and women presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, here's, here's what's happening. Paul is taking up objections. He's answering objections because he knows what they're going to be. 
He knows what they're going to be because Paul, remember, in Philippians 3 tells us before he was in Christ, he was a Hebrew of a Hebrew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He strove to keep the law strenuously and carefully. He was meticulous in everything. And so Paul understands the objections that men and women are going to raise to what he's saying. And, and notice that, that Paul says at, at the very bottom of suppressing the truth in religious self-righteousness is a failure to understand that God's kindness, his patience, his forbearing with us, his not destroying us for our sins, is to lead us to repentance. Um, the Jews of Paul's day were essentially saying, well, God has given us all these blessings. It must be because of how good we are. Um, the psalmist, by the way, takes this up in Psalm 50 when he says that men and women look around and they, they don't see God dealing with evil. They don't see him bringing his judgment. They don't see him pouring out his wrath. And, and, and they say in their hearts, he's, he's altogether like us. And God says, I'm not altogether like you. I'm going to ultimately set in order before you all the wrongs you've done. And see, here Paul is saying that uh, the religiously self-righteous, they presume on the riches of God's kindness. Listen to me right now. Every day that God has not destroyed us for our sin is a day of the manifestation of his goodness and mercy. And that is meant to lead us into the arms of Christ in repentance and faith. Every single day that God has not dealt with us according to our sins is meant to lead us into the arms of Jesus. Lead us to the foot of the cross. Listen to this. Uh, John Calvin, when he is reflecting on this, essentially says, he essentially says that um, if we really understood God's patience, it, it is meant to lead it is meant to guide us forward. Every time we drink a cup of water, every time we breathe God's air, every time we enjoy any enjoyable thing in life, these are manifestations of God's kindness. And they're meant to lead us back to him. John Murray, the great uh, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, said this, listen, he said um, that the law that could never justify us was instantly pronounced on us and that they are to understand that they need a righteousness even because of the goodness of God manifested toward them that covers their transgressions. Now notice this. I want us to consider the impartiality of God's judgment. Now, uh, really, from verses 6 on, Paul is addressing the issue of the ways that Jews viewed the Gentiles. And, and, and you know this. If you've read your Bible, the Jews despised the Gentiles. They called them dogs. They thought they were... They were lesser in every way. They essentially would listen to Paul in chapter 1 and say, that's right, that's what sinners do, and, and they wouldn't apply it to themselves. And so Paul now presses home the impartiality of God's judgment. Notice that he says... In verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. Those who, in, by practice and well-doing, seek for glory, honor, immortality, 
he'll give eternal life, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this chapter is one of the more difficult sections um, that Paul has written in any of his letters. It is difficult because on a prima facie reading, it sounds like he's saying, if you do good enough, God will save you. But we know that's not true because he's just told us that no one does good enough. He's going to tell us again in chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek God. There are none who do good. So when Paul says here, God is going to render to each one according to his works, those who by doing good, he will give eternal life. He's not saying that there is a set of people who will attain to that. He's saying if you could get life, if you could gain eternal life by what you do, you would have to do good constantly because God's law requires perfection. God's law is unblemished. There's no, there's no trap door. There's no loophole. That's the standard. It's deep. It's wide. And, and here Paul is saying that apart from the gospel... God will judge men by what they do. And verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now, that levels the playing field. And I want to talk to you frankly this morning because we can fall into the trap if we've been converted, if we're united to Christ, if we've been in a, a biblical church for any length of time, we can fall into the trap of thinking, I'm not somehow like what I used to be, or I'm somehow different than those people over there. And you see what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, there are no exclusions. There's no partiality with God. The Jews who had the law, the Gentiles who didn't have the law. He's going to unpack this throughout the rest of the let, this chapter. Those that had the law, those that didn't have the law, they're all going to be subject to the judgment of God. Gentiles who didn't have the law of Moses codified, they didn't have the 613 laws you find in the Pentateuch, they didn't have an external giving of God's law. Paul will say later in here they had the law written on their hearts because we're all from Adam. They know what's right and wrong by nature. There is a sort of natural revelation, a natural law that all men know. This is why even in the most wicked governments, where there is so much that is contrary to God's word, there is still some semblance of human-to-human -human justice in the civil sphere. How in the world does that happen? Because Paul will say that the law of God is written on their hearts. Notice... Notice verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. In every society where they've not been given God's word and yet there is punishment on murder, there is punishment on adultery, there are civil injunctions in, this, in, in the realm of jurisprudence in society because it's a reflection of, that the law of God has been written on the heart of man at creation. Now, that doesn't mean 
that there are some subset of Gentiles who are doing it right and the rest aren't because they've tapped into some sort of natural knowledge of what's right and wrong. Notice what Paul actually says in verse 15. Listen carefully. Talking about the Gentiles who have the law written on their heart. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Now, what Paul is saying is, even though all men have the law of God written on their hearts so that they know in their consciences when they've done wrong, um, best illustration I've heard for this is that the conscience of the natural man is like a fire detector that we've taken the batteries out of. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying they have the law, they know what's right and wrong, it's written on their hearts, and yet their consciences either accuse them or excuse them. So they either live in condemnation or they live in an attempt to self-justify and push off what they're doing. So why is Paul saying all these complicated things? He wants to parse through all the different categories of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, to show that no matter what approach men take apart from Christ and the gospel, everyone is inexcusable, that the judgment of God is inescapable, and that God shows no partiality. John Murray again writes this. He says, accusation and excusation whether of ourselves or others, are activities which evidence moral consciousness and therefore point to our indestructible moral nature, the only rationale of which is the work of the law of God in the heart of man. Now, what Paul's saying is, if you have the law, if you have the scriptures, if you know the truth, but your heart has not been changed, you're no different than the Gentile who has the law on his heart, but who either accuses or excuses himself. Um... If you came for a feel-good sermon, this is not it. I know that, but it is good. It is good. I want us to consider how Paul walks out of this, focusing now on the ineffectiveness of external religious rites. Um, One of the foremost ways that people try to hide their depravity and clean themselves up legally is by adhering to external rites in and of themselves without clinging to Christ. This is very important. Um, The Jews had the sacrificial system. They had the Passover lamb, all of which pointed to Christ. They had all the types, all the shadows. They had David, the covenant promises that the son of David would sit on his throne forever. They had the worship. They had circumcision. They had the gospel signs. They knew what they needed. They were told they had the prophecies of the Messiah. They knew that they needed redemption, and yet they didn't recognize that. And they latched onto those external religious rites, and they put their trust in them, and they thought they were better because they had them than these people that don't. Um, Listen to this. Very, very important this morning. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish Presbyterian, said... 
Formality is perhaps the most besetting sin of the human mind. Don't miss this. Formality is perhaps the most besetting sin of the human mind. It reigns triumphant in every natural mind. It constantly tries to reusurp the throne in the heart of every child of God. What McShane is saying is that every one of us, by nature, and the more, the more churched we are, if I can say that, the more, the more serious we are about the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, fellowship, worship, the more we embrace those things God has appointed, there's always a danger that we embrace those things and not the Christ to whom they're pointing. And we put our trust in those things and we think we're better because of them and we go through the motions. And, and we're just going through the motions hoping internally maybe this time it will work, but I'm not going to the Christ who makes it work. By the way, I could preach, I'm not going to, till I was blue in the face. And unless the Spirit of God changes your hearts, nothing will change. We could come to the table every Sunday. This table will not work ex opere operato out of itself. Unless we come to the Christ who is mediating himself through the bread and the wine, we will never really benefit from him. McShane says, if you do not find Christ in the ordinances, if he does not reveal himself to your soul in the preached word, in the broken bread, the poured out wine, if you are not brought to cleave to him, to look to him, to believe in him, then the outward observance of the ordinances is all vain to you. How do I know that? Because Paul is going to say at the very end of this, notice verse 25, he says to the old covenant Jews, circumcision, Remember, that was the covenant sign. Baptism is for us. Circumcision was for them. Circumcision is indeed valuable if you obey the law. That's what he's saying is if, if you have a new heart, if God has enabled you to follow Christ and walk uprightly, then the external things have a place and they have value. But he says, he says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precept of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. Listen, if you are trusting in baptism, if you are trusting in the Lord's Supper, if you are trusting in the fact that you come to church every Sunday morning and evening, that is a very dangerous thing to be trusting in. If you're trusting in your Bible memorization, if you're trusting in your family worship, if you're trusting in any religious rite that may in and of itself be a good thing, appointed by Christ, but we're not trusting in Jesus, then we are no different than the Jews here. Um, Paul is really pressing, isn't he, that we would examine our hearts and that we would ask ourselves the question, have I, have I had the reality of what that bloody judgment of circumcision that pointed to the bloody judgment of the cross? Have I seen my need for the blood of Jesus? Has he cleansed the inner depths of my heart so that I can say, I have been circumcised in heart and not just externally with external rites? Paul is saying, examine your heart. Ask yourself the question, do I have the reality or do I just have the rituals? I want to read again to you what McShane says here as we walk out of this and prepare to come to the supper this morning. Notice this. McShane says, Formality is the most besetting sin 
of the human mind. It reigns triumphant in every natural mind. It constantly tries to reusurp the throne in the heart of every child of God. You know, I want to I talk to you pointedly this morning. You know that I had a very rebellious past and was converted out of a whole lot of Romans 1, 18 to 32. And maybe you're here this morning and your experience has been contrary. You always did what was right. You always fell in line. I hate when people ask me, are you a rule keeper or a rule breaker? Because I'm clearly a rule breaker. But maybe you're a rule keeper that will not get you to heaven because none of us have kept God's law. Not one of us. Not even in the smallest, most minute way have we obeyed the commandments of God. When we come to the table here in a moment, we're coming and we're saying, Lord, it's, it's not what my works have done. That's why we sang that. It's not what my hands have done. I love the hymn, nothing in my hands I cling, I, I bring simply to your cross I cling. That's what we're saying. When we come to the supper, we're not saying this in some kind of superstitious sense. By the way, I was in a church of several thousand people, and over a number of years, I noticed that a, a fairly significant constituency of that congregation would only show up once a quarter when we had the Lord's Supper, and they wouldn't come the other Sundays. And I was, I was young, I was in my 20s, but I was smart enough to know what was going on and it was like, those people think that does something for them that the ministry of the word doesn't do. But you see, if Christ is being held out in scripture as the one who atones for our lawlessness, if he's the one that makes us righteous, if he's the one that propitiates God's wrath so that there is no judgment, if he's the one that circumcises our hearts, then we don't come to the table thinking in and of itself, this does something we flee to the same Christ who's in the preaching. There's, there's no difference. It's the same Jesus. I love the way that the old Scottish uh, Presbyterian John Duncan used to say it. He said, in the supper, he said, we don't get a better Christ, we get Christ better. Same Christ, same gospel, same message. And you know what's glorious? I want to leave you with this this morning. When we come to the table in just a moment, there is nothing on that table that says to you, if you do better, God will accept you. Um, The Ten Commandments are not on the table. The law of God is not on the table. Representations of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, because I have done what was necessary for you, and what the law could not do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I hope as you think about these things and you examine this morning where you are, in light of Romans 1 and 2, that you will come to a place where you see your need for the Lord Jesus. 
and you say, whatever I've been, however I've lived, whether in open lawlessness or in rebellious legalism, I am going to flee to the same Christ that everyone else needs. Because that's what the apostle is saying this morning. He's saying, there is a Christ who is for everyone. God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is impartial. Religious rituals are ineffectual. But the gospel works for every single man or woman who comes by faith and faith alone in Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do come this morning and we ask that you would have mercy on us. Lord, where we have trusted in our own works, where we have thought that we are somehow better in ourselves because of our commitment to your ordinances, to your word, to the sacraments, to your worship. We pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would reveal to us afresh that uh, we are all deserving of your judgment. If we have lived in lawlessness, that you would remind us that the gospel is the remedy, that where lawlessness and legalism abound, we pray that your grace would rule and reign, that you would cut through the darkness of our minds, that you would remove everything that obscures the light of the gospel, and that as we come this morning to the table, that you would prepare us to feed really and truly on the Lord Jesus. And so would you come, Lord Jesus, and meet with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.